My name is Holly. For those of you who don't know me, I am very excited to be here today to spend some time in the Word of God with you all. Um, Let's go ahead and get started. So reading through the passage this week about the power of the name of Jesus, it really just has made me so excited to think about all the things that God has done and is doing and will continue to do within our body. The early church, they were going through such a pivotal time of change and growth and revival of hearts. And I feel like our church is in a similar place right now. We're seeing that same just revival and it's exciting to be able to compare the two. The book of Acts, I think it often gets overlooked when people are thinking about theology, because it's not quite a gospel, it's not quite an epistle, so it kind of gets lumped into this weird category where nobody really knows what to do with it. But tucked inside the pages of this history lesson in the early church is actually a treasure trove of deep theology and rich encouragement for us today as modern day believers. We've already seen the ascension of Jesus and witnessed the apostles standing gaping at the sky, unsure what they were supposed to do. We've experienced them seeking direction from the Lord through a game of chance. We've seen them filled with the Holy Spirit, running around with flaming tongues over their heads, speaking in unknown languages in such a strange manner that everyone around them thought they were drunk. So I think for me personally, I'm just finding comfort in the reality that God uses ordinary, regular people to do his extraordinary work. Um, Sam reminded us last week not to be surprised about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And I think that that is such an important truth for us today. And that's really the question I think that we're looking at in the study today. Are we expectant for the Lord to do miraculous things or are we surprised by it? So just one question I guess to throw out there before we really get into the text. Am I the only one who started reading this passage this week and then had the song Silver and Gold Have I None stuck in my head all week long? Or was anybody else there with me? Yeah? Yeah. So yeah, that, that old kid song just over and over and over and over again. So if you don't know it, um, you can find me after and I'll sing it to you. I'm not going to do it up here, but yeah. All right, let's go ahead and get into the text. Um, Acts 3, verses 1 through 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple in the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been unable to walk from birth was being carried, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order for him to beg for charitable gifts from those entering the temple grounds. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple grounds, he began asking to receive a charitable gift. Right from the beginning, we are reminded that this brand new church is made up of people in the midst of a great transition. Some of us can really identify so much in this season of life and ministry. Here we see Peter and John going up to the temple for the hour of prayer, and we can recognize this as a carryover from the Old Covenant. The the apostles didn't just suddenly stop being Jewish when they received the Holy Spirit. The routine of Jewish worship was still very firmly rooted in their lives. But we will see this happening less and less as we move through the book of Acts, as we see these new believers clinging less to Judaism and more to Christ. So what Peter and John haven't quite realized yet, but through the Holy Spirit, they will start really sinking in for them, is the reality that they don't need to go to the temple to pray because they are the temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So regardless of this understanding for them yet, though, this vestige of of tradition brings them comfort as they're seeking the Lord, and God is going to honor their prayerful attitude. The bottom line is, God is in the business of using people who pray. Peter and John were men who were praying. Are we people who are praying? Because we are also the temple. 
The same spirit that was alive in Peter and John is alive in us. And because of that, we can truly be a people who are praying without ceasing. Jesus' blood on the cross purchased for us the right and the privilege of being people in constant communion with God. Hopefully, this is something that we hold dear and we don't take for granted. As Peter and John are on their way into the temple, they encounter the lame man. This man had been lame from birth. His whole existence consisted of having to rely on someone else to carry him to the temple gates to beg for his daily provision. Seeing Peter and John, he asks for alms. There is nothing special in his request. We have no reason to believe that this man had any inclination that Peter and John had anything other to offer than money. Peter and John could have said no. They could have walked away. Yet they do something unexpected. They get the lame man's attention. Verses 4 through 8. But Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, Look at us. And he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not have silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And grasping him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. See, this man was expectant, but he was expectant of lesser things. He was expectant of the things he was consistently receiving. He was expectant of what the world, even the devout Jews who were coming in and out of the temple, had to offer. This guy had no idea that he was about to receive something so much greater than what silver and gold could purchase. He was expecting to seem something temporary, something temporal, but instead he received something that completely changed his life eternally. We don't, he didn't know the depth of his need. We're often like this too. We think we know what we need, but what we think we need is rarely what we actually need. Sometimes, like the lame man, we look at money like it's the answer. If we could just have a little bit more, that's where happiness comes from. If I get that raise at work or I get that job, then my life would just be so much better. But as a Christian, the most powerful thing we have in our lives is not our finances. It isn't even our talents or our minds or our bodies. It is the name of Jesus Christ. Peter tells the man he will be healed in the name of Jesus. This is where the disciples got their power. Over and over, we see the disciples operating in the name of Jesus. All authority rests in Jesus, not in them and certainly not in us. We borrow that authority in the name of Jesus to do the work in his name. What I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Those words that Peter spoke, every single one of us can say that. Every single child of God can say that. Often we simply just choose not to because of what we do not have. We think that we need to have a special gift or a special ability in order to serve the Lord. We think that we need to have a successful job or we need to get our kids through school or that one prayer request that is just burning in our heart. If it just gets answered, then, then I will have everything I need to serve the Lord. But we have the name of Jesus. We have everything we need. We function in the authority of the name of Jesus, and there is nothing greater than that. Do you believe that in your own life? Do you really believe that? And if you do really believe that, does it show? I want to encourage you, and, and myself too in this, today, to really start living in that authority, to really start operating 
in that authority. If that's not the defining thing in our lives, if people don't look at us and they don't see the name of Jesus, like, we can do better. Verses 9 and 10. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as being the very one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg for charitable gifts. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. There are two levels to this miracle that we need to recognize. The first is that the man himself was blessed. But the second is that the crowd was blessed. By witnessing the miracle that took place for this man, they're about to hear the gospel of Jesus. This is what we long for in ministry, that people who are bound in sin and iniquity, crippled because of the rebellion and the fallenness of human nature, that they come to know Christ. We long for those who are spiritually hurting and in need of restoration to come to life. We long to see people walk and leap spiritually in ways that they could not before knowing the Lord. 11 and 12, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the portico named Solomon's, completely astonished. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why are you staring at us as though by our own godliness we have made him walk? Peter responded to the people. This really shows the deep spiritual awareness that Peter has at this point. See, he'd spent enough time with Jesus to understand how miracles really worked. He knew the heart of Jesus. Jesus never performed miracles just for the sake of performing a miracle. His miracles were always followed by teaching about the kingdom of God and repentance. That heart of Jesus is now reflected in Peter. And he, he was not looking just to create a supernatural spectacle. But instead, he's directing everything back to the attitude of the heart and restoration to the Father. What is our attitude about miracles? Are we seeking them merely because they're something that we desperately want? Or in our hearts, do we seek the miracle because we seek the way God is going to use the miracle? I know I've been guilty of this many, many times. There's just a burden that I want a miracle in this situation, God. But am I really stepping back and saying, what are you doing here? How are you using this circumstance? And if this was something that you were going to give me, how would you use that miracle to impact other people? If we could zoom out big picture at the desire of our hearts from the heavenly perspective, would it change our desire? Would we seek the miracle if we knew that by not receiving our desire, God was able to bring more hearts into relationship with him? It's a hard question. It's a hard question to answer. Sometimes the miracle is so much or even more about the people around the miracle and not the miracle itself. See here, Peter, he's ministering to an individual, but there were other people witnessing it that also needed to be touched. Peter saw this as an opportunity. Peter was waiting for this opportunity. He was open to this opportunity. Do you live your day like that? The truth is probably most of the time, no, we don't. It's not that we don't love God. We do. We love God. It's not that we're not aware of God, but sometimes we just get in the habit of going through the motions or getting the job done. We aren't really expectant. We aren't seeking the opportunities. But it isn't enough for us to just seek the opportunities. We actually have to take action when we're given them. When confronted with this opportunity, Peter also did something about it. He seized the moment. He didn't let it pass. He wasn't too busy. How many opportunities has God placed before us that we've missed because we were too busy or too afraid? 
Let's be people who not only see that opportunity, but we step out in faith as God empowers us, and then we watch what God is going to do. So here we have a miracle. We have the no longer lame man praising God. And then we have people looking to Peter and John in amazement, wondering what they have done. Peter and John, they could have taken credit for this miracle, but in their humility, they recognized their own sin and their status without Christ. They knew that nothing, nothing they had was worth offering other than the name of Jesus. So they shifted the focus away from the, sor- or from the vessel of the miracle and back onto the source. When God uses us to perform miracles in his name, it should provoke that same sense of humility in us. We should be so aware and responsive to the reality that we are merely broken vessels, but God is filling us up anyway, and he is allowing his spirit to overflow in us and onto those around us. Their authority wasn't in their own name any more than our authority is in our own names. Our authority is not in the name of Pastor Ryan, and it is not in the name of Calvary Chapel. Our our authority is in the name of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, not us, me. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the power that is within us. This is the authority that we as believers have in the name of Jesus. Peter and John knew how to respond to the people because they were tuned into God through prayer. They were yielding their will to the will of the Father. They weren't focused on their agenda for the day, but on God's agenda for the day. Any of you who know me well know that I am a planner. I have spreadsheets for my spreadsheets. <laughs> my schedule, my agenda, my entire life is meticulously planned out. So the idea of giving up my agenda, my carefully crafted day for what the Lord has for me, when I'm in my flesh, that stresses me out really bad. It really truly is an act of submission to God if I can relinquish control over my own life. But this is why prayer is so key. Because God doesn't ask us to just sit around waiting to be told what to do. We're called to be good stewards of the time that we have and the resources that we have. We're called to be constantly about our Father's business. We know the things he's already called us to do. What it does mean, though, is that we have to be mindful of our days and productive. But in those moments when God says, stop, be still, I'm changing your plans today, we have to be obedient. We have to trust him. So Peter questions the people, and he's going to shift gears just a little bit here, and he's going to say, hey, God's people, how is this something that you weren't anticipating? Do you not remember how God works? Can you not see that this is from God? This is where it's going to start really getting real for the people. This is where Peter is really going to start preaching the gospel. Look at verses 13 through 18. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you handed over to be disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him, but you disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and put to death the prince of life, 
whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did, also did. But the things which God previously announced by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Peter starts walking them back through their history. You, of all people, Israel, should know that God can work this way. He pulls them back to their legacy, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then Peter also clearly establishes their sin. Peter doesn't pull punches. It's one of my favorite things about Peter. He just says it how it is. He wasn't afraid to tell them the truth. People are tired of being lied to. We look at around the world today, we see that. They're tired of being lied to. We see a world where people are wondering, does anybody tell the truth anymore? The Lord tells the truth. Jesus is the truth. Because the disciples were influenced by Jesus, they told the truth. If we're influenced by Jesus, we tell the truth. We need to remember, though, that when we're telling the truth, it also comes down to grace and truth. Because the purpose of our truth is to set people free. And if we want to set people free with truth, we have to be really conscious about the way that we tell truth. We must choose to be both a truth teller and gracious and loving in our communication. This may not always come naturally to us. Some of us, I'm talking about myself, find it much easier to tell the truth than to be loving in our truth. I know I must consciously choose to temper my words with the love of Jesus. It's one of the ways that I think I see God most working in my life is when I, I choose to say it nicely and I don't just say it the way that it, it comes out in my head the first time. Um, some of you are the other way and you trend more towards grace and not truth. The idea of actually confronting on someone on their sin makes you shake and you, you don't want to do it. So it, I really just, I think I find, found myself looking at this this week and thinking of like, how good is God that he didn't just put truth tellers or just put the gracious and call them his body, but he put us together so that together we represent him. Together the way that we trend and in our strengths and weaknesses. Peter's gonna outline some major truths of their sin though. He's gonna say, first, you denied Jesus. Pilate wanted to release Jesus and you, you disowned him and wanted his death. You chose a murderer over the holy and righteous one. You, you killed the author of life. You rejected the Messiah that you've been waiting for. But God, but God. He restored Jesus, the Messiah, whom you rejected to life. And it is in the power of his name that this man walks before you, broken and now whole, restored to full use of his body in Jesus' name. I imagine that you could probably hear a pin drop at this point because the weight of what they had done had to be sinking in for them. But this is where Peter is going to give them the opportunity to repent. In verses 19 through 20, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Peter says you need to repent. Why? So that you can be refreshed by the Lord. There are lots of deep theological terms that Peter could have chosen to use here, but he chooses the word refreshed. And I love that because I think it's so personal and it's so meaningful. 
Because if we're honest, I think at the end of the day, that's the way that we feel. That's what we need. We need to be refreshed. This refreshment also makes me think of the woman at the well. Just like the woman, we see the lame man in that same light. The thing that you have been longing for all of this time is Jesus. You've tried the ways of the world, and it has left you thirsty, discouraged, empty, without purpose. If you only knew who it was that asked you to give, a, give you a drink, if you only knew who you crucified, if you only knew, neither the woman at the well nor the lame beggar knew the power of the name of Jesus. They weren't expecting that level of restoration. But Jesus knew. Peter and John knew. It's the same for us. We know. Are we stepping out in the authority of the name of Jesus? Or are we withholding that living water from those that we meet who are in desperate need? Are we people who are stepping out in the authority of the name of Jesus? Or are we missing out on what God wants us to do? Are we only looking to the works of the past or what God has already done? Or are we truly expectant for what God is going to do right here, right now? Or what he's going to do tomorrow? Where are we looking for that refreshment? Think, think just through your week, through your days, when you're looking to rest or for refreshment, where are you going for that? Are you binging on food or hobbies or Netflix, looking for something that those things can never give us? The things of this earth will never bring us a refreshing. It's in seeking the Lord in the quiet. It's in the name of Jesus, repenting of the sin that gets in the way so that our lives can be renewed. That's that's. The whole point here for Peter, repent. Get right with God so God can blot out your sins and then let him bring you rest. If this has been a hard season, if you feel exhausted from the trials that you've been walking through, you feel like you're just going through the motions of being a Christian and nothing really seems to lift the burden of your heart, lean into God. Make room in your heart for God to bring in that refreshing. And then finally, Peter is gonna start pulling together all of the pieces. Verses 21 through 26. Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your countrymen. To him you shall listen regarding everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward have also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God ordained with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God raised up his servant for you first and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. The people acted in ignorance, but this does not excuse their sin. They should have known. They should not have been ignorant. The prophets had been foretelling of Jesus since the days of Moses. From Genesis 3 to John the Baptist, the prophets had been foretelling. Not just about his coming, but also about the suffering he would endure and the reality that he would be rejected and crucified and resurrected. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, and so many more, prophet after prophet, the warnings were rejected until Christ would come and he himself would be rejected and killed. 
I could honestly stand up here for the next hour going through all of these prophecies and I would barely touch the surface of everything that God put there for them to read. But here in our context, that's not, it's not really the point. The point, the big picture, is that God had a plan from creation. God had a plan. He was orchestrating it to bring the entire world into restoration to himself through the people of Israel. I think we are often trying to orient God's word and his work around us instead of orienting us around God's word and work. We almost set up a transactional relationship with the Lord where we think in some way he's here to serve us. We don't go back and we don't look at the history of what God has done through everyone else. All the people throughout centuries that God has been working through to accomplish his work. The restoration that we get to look forward to is big picture. It's all of creation and heaven and earth. And we are just a very, very small part of that. Romans 8.22 tells us that all of creation groans. Jesus said in Luke 19 that even the rocks would cry out. All of creation longs to be restored to the Father, and all of creation will. The promises that God made to the nation of Israel, those promises are still going to come to pass. Peter doesn't say, hey guys, you blew it, and so now God is going to fulfill all of those prophecies with the church. Those are still prophecies. They're still promises for Israel. He assures Israel time and time again that they are still going to be restored. Hosea 2.23, And I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. This is a promise for Israel. Just as he told Abraham and the whole world that the whole world would be blessed through his seed, he always had a plan to restore both Israel and the nations around the world through Israel. Jesus will return at the proper time to restore all things which God has spoken. Peter reminds the people of the words of the prophets, of the promise of, to Abraham. Jesus came like Moses, he, but he is the greater Moses. Moses led an exodus from slavery, but Christ will come to lead the real exodus from slavery. Moses delivered the first and old covenant. Jesus delivered and is the new covenant. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham of worldwide blessing. Genesis 26, 4, and through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. So in this, this message of Peter to the Israelites, what is the message here for us? It's really simple. Jesus is coming back. Repent, be refreshed, and then be about the Father's business. Be expectant for the Holy Spirit to move. Be available for the Holy Spirit to use you and then step out in faith when he does.